you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, will be in verses 36 to 46, 30, 33 to 46. Today we're going to talk about the parable of the wicked tenants. The parable of the wicked tenants. And I was thinking very hard about how I can introduce what this sermon is really getting at. And I came up with this. I reached back into the depths of my memory. And there was a time when it was at my first duty station. I was, um, how old was I? I was, I was 19 years old. And as a 19-year-old, who better in security forces, who better to be in charge of the armory than me? 19 years old. What? Everyone else is 19 too, so it just doesn't mean anything. You know, if you're, you're old, if you're 35 in the military, I mean, you're almost ready to retire. Anyway, I am the armorer, which means I give people their weapons, I take their weapons in, and I'm responsible for issuing and maintaining and accounting for all the weapons, you know, so none disappear during the shift and everything else. And there is this one time when I was bored. You get bored when you work night shift and you do weird. Have you ever had this thing where you think something's a great idea at nighttime when you're tired working overnight? And then in the daytime after you slept, you're like, what was I thinking? You know, don't send emails, don't text people, don't do things at night. You're just not there. Anyway, I decided because I was bored, there would be a great opportunity to take apart a Mossberg shotgun in the armory. I just took it apart. I took it apart, took the entire thing apart, and then guess what? I couldn't put it back together. And you may be wondering, if I'm the armor, shouldn't I know how to do that anyway, since I'm in charge of all the weapons? That is a good question, and it's best not to answer right now. The point is, I was in charge of the armory, and I couldn't put the gun back together. I even got out the, um, the instruction manual and was trying to figure it out, and it just wouldn't work. Um, and I was in trouble because... I could get it so it looked like it was together, but I had these pieces left over, you know, like an Ikea dresser or something. And I'm like, I, at one point I was thinking, well, maybe these aren't really necessary. <laughs> well, you know, no one will notice, uh, you know, the extra screws or something, you know. And, um, but it, it, it was a problem, and I did eventually solve it. The guy who took over for me he knew how to put it together, so he, he helped me fix it. But the point that I want us to zoom in on is I had what looked like a functioning weapon, but it it couldn't function. It was it was it was useless. It looked like something, but it really wasn't anything. And what this parable teaches us is it's a denunciation against a bunch of people who believe that they have a place in God's kingdom. It's the Jew the Jewish leaders who he's talking to. He tells a lot of parables against the Jewish establishment. And they believe they're part of the kingdom. They believe they have the citizenship. They could reach into their wallet and pull out their passport and say, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. But Jesus's parable is that, no, you're not. You're, you look like you are. You may think you look like you are. You may be able to say all these fancy words, but you have no place. You have no place in my kingdom at all, um, no matter what it looked like. And the problem the Pharisees have and the scribes is a problem that any of us can fall into, which is why the parables are so powerful and why they pack such a punch when we ruminate about them in our minds. Uh, are we 
are we in danger of making the same mistakes as the Pharisees are? And that's what the handout is about that I'll get to at the end of the sermon. But that's what we're going to talk about. That's what the parable is about. That's what Jesus wants us to think about. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to read through the parable. Then we're going to identify what stands for what. Then we're going to go through it and chat about it. And then I'll explain uh, one thing that I think God would have us do and think after we read this parable of the wicked tenants. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. So let's pray and we'll dive into this parable. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Please help us to love you, help us to know you, and help your word to sink into our hearts. And please let your Holy Spirit apply the word as it needs to be applied in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The parable. Let's, let's read the thing and see what Jesus says. This parable has a context. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. I was supposed to be doing the parables in order, and I spent a lot of time doing this. So I don't know how we're doing a parable that occurs at the end of Jesus' ministry, but whatever. Anyway, it's the end of Jesus' ministry. He's come into Jerusalem. Uh, Palm Sunday has happened, and he's gone to the temple, and he threw over the tables and was very angry at the, the, the money racket that was going on in the temple. He curses the fig tree. The fig tree looks like it should have fruit, but it's got no fruit. Connect the dots between them and the Jewish leaders. And then he tells this parable of the, tells the parable of the two sons, which we'll get to one day. But now we get to the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. And this is what it says. He says, he's talking to the chief priests and the, the elders. This is what he says. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him or seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, he'll bring these wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures and he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, quotes over, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone 
on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. That's the parable. This is a busy parable. Some parables are simple, like the one last week and the week before, but some of them have like a lot of moving parts, like the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's tons of moving parts. There's the guy that sows. There's the, there's the, the, the crop. There's the weeds. There's, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. This is a busy parable. There's lots of stuff. So the first thing we have to do is figure out who are the main characters and who do they represent. You have a landlord, you have good tenants, and you have bad tenants. Who's the landlord? God. Who are the original tenants who are bad, not good? Who are they? The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the guys he's talking to. I mean, he said at the end they knew he was talking about them. So that's who they are. Then we have new tenants. He's going to give the, he's going to give the vineyard to new tenants who are going to actually produce fruit. These are people who have, he's going to give it to people who have real faith. They're actually going to be fruit. But now there, there's three other things we have to figure out. One of them is extremely important. Who are the servants who the landlord sends to talk to these guys, to talk sense into these guys who are killed or beaten or kicked out? Who are they? Prophets, all the prophets. What about the son? Surely they will respect my son. Jesus, what is the vineyard? This is the tricky one. What is the vineyard? Many people think the vineyard is Israel because Isaiah loves to use Israel as the vineyard. Isaiah 5 uses it. Isaiah 24, 5, 6, 7, somewhere in the mid-20s, Isaiah uses it again. This vineyard thing is all over the place. But the vineyard is not Israel. Because at the end, in verses 42 to 44, the vineyard is the thing that they have that's going to be taken away and given to someone else. What does verses 42 to 44 say is going to be taken away from them? In verse 43, the kingdom. It's the kingdom that they have that he's going to take away from them and give to somebody else. Just because the Bible uses a figure about one thing, it doesn't mean it's always that thing. So Jesus tells us it's not Israel. It's the kingdom. He just grabbed this vine metaphor because Everyone knows it. It's, it's popular. They'll connect the dots real quick. The kingdom, the vineyard, is the kingdom, which is, we talked about last week, it's God's community. It's God's family. It's God's nation. It's, you can be part of the kingdom now, but it's not going to actually be here until later when Jesus comes back and he establishes righteousness and makes everything right and makes everything good. The kingdom is the vineyard. So if you can remember that, this will, some of this will start clicking into place. So now that we've identified what these things are, let's look at what the parable says. Here it is again. Listen to another parable. There was a landlord who planted a vineyard. And here he's, he's really you know, taking from Isaiah chapter 5. If you've never read Isaiah chapter 5, you should read it, and you'll see that Jesus is borrowing from all of that. Meaning, 
he did everything to make this vineyard work, right? So he planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, so he couldn't have, couldn't have critters jumping over the walls and, and destroying it, couldn't have people coming in and destroying it, planted a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and even built a watchtower. What more could have been done to make this thing a success? Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers the tenants, and then he moved away to another place. It takes years for the vines to begin to produce. So figure a few years, three, four years, for a produce to start coming from the vineyard. So it's a long-term investment. Put the vineyard, did everything he could, gave it to some people to make some fruit from it, and then off he went to go do other things, other landlord-like things. So we get to verse 34. When the harvest time approached, it's time to see what kind of fruit we have from this vineyard. He sent his servants to his tenants to collect his fruit. What have we got? Where's the, what has this vineyard produced? What's this kingdom produced? This kingdom that they've been in charge of. What do we got? What's it done? What is it doing? Is what it's doing what it's supposed to have been happening? Or has there been, has everyone been asleep on the job? Is it bad fruit? What's going on? That's what happened in Isaiah chapter five. He planted this vineyard, did everything he's supposed to. And then at harvest time he goes and he's like, these grapes are, are terrible. These aren't the grapes I was expecting. Is that what's gonna happen here? Sent the tenants, uh, sent the servants to the tenants and said, here for the fruit. Let's check things out and see what we have. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Not a good reception. Clearly, there's a problem. They've forgotten who they are. They're the tenants, and the landlord's the one who owns the place. They're just supposed to take care of it for him according to his instructions. But apparently, they have some other ideas. Then he sent other servants to them. More prophets come. More prophets come to tell God's people, this is what you should be doing. Remember, you're supposed to love me. I brought you out of Egypt upon eagles' wings. I've done everything for you. If you've never read Ezekiel 16 and seen this imagery of um, God being betrayed by a spouse, read Ezekiel 16. Read Hosea 1 through 3 if you've not read Hosea. Sometimes we stick so often in the comfy passages Matthew, Mark, 1 Corinthians, stuff like that. Read Ezekiel 16. Read Hosea 1 through 3 and see how God compares himself to a, a lover who's been stabbed in the back. All of these prophets who God sends to tell his people, you need to be doing this. Return to me and love me like you used to. He sent other servants to them more than the first time and the tenants treated them the same way. No good result. He sent tons of people. He just keeps sending more. It's just going to be the same thing. Clearly, he needs to send a different messenger, someone who will really be able to get through to them, someone who's so close to him that they'll take him much more seriously than they took the other people, and maybe they'll, maybe they'll change. Maybe they'll change. The landlord's a pretty nice guy, right? Who, we've called the police a long time before now. We're taking matters into your own hands. This is a long-suffering landlord. Everyone wants a landlord like this. So, 
Last of all, he sent his son to them, verse 37. They, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. You've sent everyone else. We kill his son. Is he going to come himself? No, he'll cut his losses and just walk away. It's ours. So they took or they seized him. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And it's really interesting the way they picture it. They, he comes into the vineyard looking for them. And they take him. They seize him. They, have, they drag him outside. They kill him outside the camp. They kill him outside the vineyard. They don't kill him inside. Drag him outside and finish him off in the dirt outside. So that's the parable. It's easy to think too hard about the parable or to make it do things it's not meant to do. It's just a simple story in a context to point at an issue or the people he's talking to. So that's, what, that's the parable. Therefore, Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And if, I mean, what else can they say? Of course, kill them, right? Destroy them. These guys, death penalty. Surely, you know, these guys deserve to pay. There should be no mercy. They've had every chance. They don't care. And Jesus knows that's what they're going to say. In verse 41, they say, he'll bring these wretches to a wretched end. And he'll, more than that, he'll kick them out, destroy them, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, they can probably already see where this is, where this is going, but they answer the question. So Jesus said to them, and now he's going to really hit them with the issue. Have you never read in the scriptures? And he quotes from Psalm 118. There's, uh, tons of New Testament writers use this passage, a passage about, you rejected me, but guess what? You were wrong. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the foundation stone, the key that everything else fits into on the foundation of the building. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives this picture of how we're all, if you're a Christian, we're each individual building blocks, slotted in here, slotted in there, who make up this building that is God's community. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone of that building. We're these little bricks slotted here and there, stuffed here. But Jesus is the foundation stone that sets the whole thing the right way. And this quote from Psalm 118 means you, you could have, I could have been the foundation of your life, but instead you threw me off to the side, kicked me down into the valley and just left me there. And you built your life on something else. But guess what? You were wrong. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's he saying? So now in verse 43, he tells them, Therefore, in light of what that passage means, in light of the parable, I tell you this, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The kingdom of God is taken away from you. And he's going to give it to someone who will do something with it. 
That's really insulting language. Isn't that insulting to these proud men who teach people how to know God? A fake way, but they teach people they think how to know God. They teach little kids in schools. They teach Jewish boys and girls how to know who God is. They teach adults how to have a relationship with God. Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, they're proud people. They have status. And Jesus says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to someone who's actually going to produce fruit, because you are those wretched people. You're the tenants who are destroying everything and who have no fruit, and are trying to steal it away from the landlord. That's you guys. And then he gives this imagery. Anyone who falls on this stone, what stone? What's the stone they can fall on? This cornerstone that, that everything is keyed to. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's a picture of, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, there's this picture of God's kingdom as this huge boulder that just smashes this statue that represents all the world kingdoms, all the kingdoms of this world. But there's going to be this stone made without hands in this vision that comes and just smashes it to pieces. And that is God's kingdom that triumphs over everything. One day triumphs over everything. And what Jesus is saying is... <clears throat> This cornerstone that you guys are still rejecting, even as you're listening to me, this is going to crush everything to pieces, including you, including you, because you guys are the wicked tenants who are stealing everything. And they don't think they are. That's what's so scary. They don't think that that's them, that they can't see it. That's how deluded we can become, how messed up we can get in our own minds. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. You don't have to be a genius to get what Jesus is saying. When the chief priests, verse 45 and 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. People held that he's a prophet. So what is this par what should you do with this parable? Don't reject Jesus and try to kill him? Is that what you should do? You guys are all good then, probably, right? None of you are plotting to kill Jesus. The, the, what are you supposed to do with this now? This parable, what it does is it, it rips away all of the stuff we tell ourselves and makes, it, makes us want to see ourselves as we are. Because th this is important. These guys, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not Looney Tunes characters. You know, you always know who the bad guy is. In, the, in a James Bond movie, you always know who the bad guy is. He's an evil, diabolical villain who wants to control the world or something, and he's clearly crazy, right? And sometimes he even knows he's crazy and he doesn't care. All the way from Dr. No in the first one to whoever, whatever the last horrible James Bond movie was. There are all these crazy people. They're not normal. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees are normal people. We're normal people. And normal people can fool themselves. 
We're making a mistake if we think of the scribes and Pharisees as cartoonish evil villains. They are people who thought, who genuinely thought they knew what it meant to love God and they were genuinely really wrong. This parable makes us think, am I the wicked tenant? And of course we want to say, of course not. No, it's someone else. It's not me. But is it me? Is it you? In Zechariah chapter 12, this beautiful picture of things are, things are going to be fixed. Jesus will come back. Uh, in Zechariah 12, we see that on the day when things are going to be fixed, it says God is going to pour out a spirit of supplication. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on people, on the Jewish people, and they're going to look at God. They're going to look at the Messiah who they pierced, and they're going to be so full of grief. Now, they didn't do it because this is in the future. You know, people way back then did it, but they did it too because they rejected Jesus as well, even though it came a long time later. And they didn't, see, the reason why they're so sad in Zechariah 12 is they didn't see it. And then when they did see it, they have this, oh my goodness, sort of shock. And they cry. And they're sad. Because their whole lives, they didn't see that that's what they're doing until they realized, that's what I've been doing. And there's this intense and terrible grief in Zechariah 12, verse 10. We can fool ourselves so much because it's always about someone else. It's always about someone else, and it's never about us. So don't think of the Pharisees and scribes as cartoon characters. We fool ourselves into thinking we're on God's side when we really reject him. So think about Paul. Paul, on the road to Damascus, he's going around everywhere, finding Christians, arresting them. Is Paul a cartoon villain, or did Paul really believe he was making God happy by doing that? Which one? He really thought God was happy with him. He thought that I'm doing the Lord's work by finding these heretics and rounding them up and having them killed, testifying against them. That's what these guys are. They're Paul before Paul was converted. It's not a cartoon character. We can do this to ourselves. We can think we're so close to Jesus. We're so close to him. But in reality, we're Paul. We're the people who are going to weep when we realize that we rejected Jesus too. We're the people, the scribes and Pharisees, we're the wicked tenants. We can do that because Paul did it. And he'll take the kingdom away from us. If that's us, he can take the kingdom away, take the citizenship away from us and give it to someone else, someone who will actually produce fruit. There's a haunting passage in Matthew 8, verses 10 and 11, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and asks for, uh, asks for healing for his daughter. And Jesus says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come with you. And the guy says, no, you can just say it. You don't need to come. Uh, I have people under my authority, and I, I can delegate, and it gets done. You can delegate, too. Just, just heal her from here. And Jesus is astonished. This is a Roman soldier. This is a pagan. And he says, that's when he says, I've, I've never found so great a faith, not in Israel. An outsider who shouldn't care anything about the Messiah has more faith than all the Jewish people he's trying to talk to. And then he says, in the last day of the great um, banquet feast, 
He says tens of people are going to come from the east and the west. They're going to sit down at a table right next to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the subjects of the kingdom, the ones who should be sitting there, a bunch of them are not even going to get in the door. And what did he, what's that mean? It means the same thing that he's saying to these guys. You think, you're, you, think you have a membership card, but you don't. You don't. I can give my membership card to other people who will actually do something with the citizenship, the, the, the status that I'm willing to give them. I can give it to someone else. So what's Jesus want us to do? What's he want us to do with this parable? We need to, in order to do anything with the parable, we have to try and crack through this self-deception that we can do to ourselves and actually look at our lives. Is there kingdom fruit in your life? That's what I think we should do with this parable. You're not a, Jew, a leader of the Jewish establishment, so Jesus wasn't directly talking to you, but we can take his point and we can apply it to our lives. Do you have, if you say you're a Christian, is there kingdom fruit in your life or not? Are you a good tenant who's being a good citizen, taking care of the house that he's, he's put you in or not? Or are you living in this house as though it's your own, doing whatever you want to it, hanging pictures on the wall without the landlord's permission? Heaven forbid, you're not going to get your deposit back. Now, are, what are you doing with this house? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living for God if you say you're a believer? So there's two things I think we can do and they, they go together. The first, there's a handout on your seat or near you. This is something you can do. Say, what kind of fruit am I producing? This is a chart based on the fruits of the Spirit. Some of them have more than one question attached to it. But have someone you trust fill this out about you when they're in a good mood. Fill this out about you and then give it back to you so they can and then let, let them run away or something before you say, what? No, have someone fill this out about you and think about what it says if someone you trust scores it in a way that shocks you. What is the fruit in your life? And I'm not saying this as someone who's like, I have everything put together. And you all commoners need to shape up or ship out. That's not the attitude that, that I'm coming at this with. We need to think, is, if we say we're Christians, is there kingdom fruit in our lives? What are the fruits of having the Holy Spirit? Have someone you trust fill this out on you. Or you do it yourself if you trust nobody. And think about it. You have to think about it. And don't score it and be like, well, I can change this here and that here and then everything's fine and I can go watch, I can go stream something. No, think, score it and think about what it means. You have to crack. We each have to crack through the self-deception that we can do to ourselves so we can think about this. If we are not happy with the score, if we can genuinely say, this is not good, then you're not producing fruit in the vineyard that God's put you in. That means you have to do something. We have to do something. Something in your life has to change. You have to address the issue. If there's no fruit, you have to do something about it. 
You need to have a come to Jesus moment with your spouse or with your best friend or with your cat. Okay? And and think about what is happening in my life to produce a score like this. Your spouse will hopefully listen to you. Your best friend will listen to you. Your cat will listen to you. Talk to your cat. It'll purr and sit there. But you need to stop for a moment and put your phone down and think about what's happening in my life that someone I trust and know and love gives me this score. And what am I going to do about it? So that's task number one. Task number two is to pray and ask God, what should I do? I think you should pray Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. This is what it says. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. And these two tasks go together. Do the survey, take stock of the results from someone you trust, and then pray this and ask God this. This is what David said. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. Pray this in your life with the survey results before you and ask God, what do I need to do so I can show fruit for you like I used to? like I'm supposed to. What do I need to do so I can be a tenant in your kingdom who produces fruit? Simon in Acts chapter 8 is a perfect example of someone who makes the same mistake these guys are making. They think the kingdom is about them. They think they can take it over and they think that it's a tool for them to achieve whatever they want. That's why they try and they killed all the servants who were sent to them. Simon in Acts chapter 8 is a believer. He's even baptized. But he sees the power of the Holy Spirit, the unique power that those men had. And he says, I would like some of that. I want, to, I want to do that. I'd like to use my status to help myself out. He's a perfect example of someone who seems to know and understand and, and love God, but can wander so far away, so fast even, that you wonder what's wrong with this guy. Because we can delude ourselves. So pray those words, do the survey, pray these words and ask God, make me see myself as I really am. That's what we can do with this parable. That's how we can make this parable real. These are very scary words. Therefore, I tell you this, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Because they're not producing anything. It'll belong there. Take them away. Someone else can produce fruit because you aren't doing it. It's a very sobering parable. It's meant to make us think. It doesn't resolve any. Does that mean we lose our salvation? He's, he's not even talking about that. He's talking about it. He's saying this. So we can be shocked and take stock of our lives. So they might take stock of themselves. It worked with Nicodemus, likely. Is it going to work with us? Because we always want to think it's about someone else. Is it or not? That 
is what Jesus would have us do with this parable. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning in your son's name. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness. Help us to think about you, the fruit we're producing for you, if we say we love you and belong to you. Lead us to one to produce more fruit, better fruit, healthier fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.